0: Welcome back to the commentary to Shemini Atzeret, the 8th day of assembly, the final day of the festival known as Sukkot. This is the commentary of the Mikra E Kodesh, the Holy Convocation series. I'm the author, Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. This is part B, and we're about uh, near the bottom of page 3 if you have the written notes. We've been talking about the introduction to um, this document known as Torah. This 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 uh, covenant that we carry with us, and we recognize that there are at least two very important covenants that impact both Jews and Gentiles, and that we need to understand our place in these covenants. We talked briefly, very briefly, in Part A about the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant made with Abraham, and about the Mosheic covenant, the covenant made with Moses. Let's turn now to a detailed discussion about the Written Torah. This next section is entitled Written Torah, Torah Shibktaav, or Torah as it is written Torah from the writings um, I've called together some information much assistance from various internet sources and um, some down through the years some I no longer even recall where I got them from in order to examine the two main Judaic perspectives of this Torah okay? so I'm going to pull some information that was previously recorded from a previous commentaries into this particular section on the written Torah the term law in the English Bible derives from the Greek word namas and namas itself is a translation of the Hebrew word Torah so that whenever in the Greek we find the word um, namas it's actually referring to the Hebrew word Torah. In the Hellenistic period that extended from 3rd century um, BCE before the Common Era to the 1st century BC and onward the original Hebrew word Torah was rendered by namas which was the Greek word for law. Now the Septuagint, which is usually represented in in writings by the Roman numerals LXX, um, is the most important Greek version of the Hebrew Bible coming from the Hellenistic period of the first century. Uh, In fact, it is the um, Bible that Yeshua uh, was familiar with as well as the Masoretic text that was coming into existence. The Masoretic text is the Hebrew and the Septuagint is simply the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew. I believe Yeshua would have been familiar with both of them. Um, the, uh, the Septuagint cons- uh, constantly translates the word Torah as Namas as we read um, the law also meant, quote, the law of the Lord, so sometimes the word law there is simply shorthand for the law of, of, of Adonai, of Hashem in fact the references to Luke two twenty three 23 uh, and 24 and verse 39 we'll see where it says the law of the Lord it simply means the Torah the Law is the will of the Lord; It is, in fact, the um, revelation of his thoughts and of his of his um, his intentions so it 's very important that we gain a proper perspective of the Torah. The, the law is not simply a legal code but it is a totality of the revelation of Hashem, totality in all that in the sense that it 's what God has given us, it is a limited revelation, but it is complete in that it is what He has given us, and we need not speculate as to what else could have been or should have been written. The word that we have transmitted and, and handed down to us today um, is a complete revelation in its in its uh, original autographs. It gives the people of God instructions on how they should live just and how th- or how they should live justly. And how they should carry on their ordinary lives by showing mercy to their neighbors. Among other functions, the law was designed to provide detailed instructions about how the ancient Israelites should prepare and offer sacrifices to their God. We're going to read about that in the upcoming uh, book of Leviticus. The law also showed them how to make distinctions between clean and unclean foods and other things. And it taught them how to deal with criminal justice in their communities. Moreover, as Yeshua summarized so well, quote, the weightier matters of the law are justice and mercy and faith, end quote. That's from Matthew 23.23. 23. Now, of course, the Pentateuch, which is another phrase for the first five books of Moses, it does contain the legal codes. And what is more, they are to be understood as the will or teachings of Hashem. Um, we've heard the phrase, Torah um, Shebektav, it's, well, maybe you haven't heard that before. It's actually a rabbinic term. Uh, Torah Shabiktav refers to that which was written. Um, Ketav there, the last part of the clause, uh, means um, to write, uh, where we get the phrase, um, the Ketuvim, the writings. So Torah Shabiktav uh, tora refers to the written Torah. Now when we look back into the history of the Bible, it's evident that the scriptures have had a long process of development. Judaism itself makes reference to the entire corpus of ancient scriptures by use of a moniker that I've used from time to time called Tanakh. And it's actually an acronym formed from the three Hebraic sections of what Christians would call their Old Testament. Uh, Namely, the Torah, the first five books, the T. And then we have the next section called the Nevi'im, which is the plural of the word Navi, um, which means prophet. Navi means prophet, Nevi'im, prophets, so we got the T and then the N. And then the last section is called Ketuvim, which is a word formed from the um, singular Katav, which means write. Um, so Ketuvim means writings. Um, thus we end up with Law, Prophets, and Writings, or Tanakh, the acronym T-N-K. Now, firstly, the Torah itself came into existence. Um, as we are reading through the Torah, we know that the way that it has been recorded is the way that it was, in fact, historically given. The Torah came first. The, um, um, the rest of the prophetic writings came, and then the rest of the, the Tanakh. Um, technically referred to as the uh, as the Hagiographer, um, they follow the Torah. The Torah was recognized as Scripture much sooner than the Prophets and the Hagiographer. Um, in fact, at the time of Yeshua, the last section of the Tanakh did not yet enjoy canonical status. So sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the um, the Law and the Prophets. Um, the writings themselves were still kind of in flux. It was only until late in the first century AD that we Jewish people recognized the Hagiographa as part of our scriptures. The Gospels, therefore, constantly mention, because of this feature, they constantly mention, quote, the Law and the Prophets, just like in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, Think not that I've come to do away with the Law, the Prophets. He doesn't say, think not that I've come to do away with the Law of the Prophets and the Writings. So, um, the phrase, Law and the Prophets, was synonymous with the Bible at the time of Yeshua. In fact, if I pull a quote from Acts 13, verse 15, it reads, quote, After the reading of the Law and the Prophets, the officials of the synagogue, you know, quote, um, it, Acts is telling us just what part, what Bible they were using. Um, and then, of course, uh, Matthew 5.17, quote Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets, the reference I just gave you. And then there's another one I want to bring in from Matthew 22.40, which says, quote And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So we see from these few examples that it is the law and the prophets that formed the, quote, Bible of the first century. Now, there are eight other instances in the B'r'echad Shah uh, the Apostolic Scriptures, where the expression Law and Prophets is used to denote the Bible of that time. Those references are Matthew 7, 12, 11, 13, Luke 16, 16, as well as 24, 44, then we have John 1, and then we have Acts 24, 14, Acts 28, 23, and then finally Romans three twenty one. Quite often, however, either law or prophets is shown to be standing alone and still conveying the same meaning viz. the Scriptures. For instance, um, in the New Testament, there are passages like, quote, Have you not read in the law that, end quote, and that's, of course, from Matthew twelve five, And it says, Have you not read in the law? And we have, and, quote, So that the scriptures of the prophet may be fulfilled. So we have, Have you not read in the law? It doesn't say law and the prophets, just the law. We have places where we can just distinguish one by themselves. Um, and then, again, it says, So that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled, uh, Matthew 26.56. Similar instances are also found in Matthew 2.23, uh, Matthew 5.18, Matthew 12.5, Luke 2.22 and 23, Luke 16.29, Luke 18.31, Luke 24.27, and then also we have a reference in John 6.45 where you can find the phrases um, like law and scriptures. Now, the the, the uh, purpose and meaning of the written law or the Torah, now codified in the Pentateuch, um, actually emanates from, as I mentioned earlier, the ten words which specify the covenant relationship between God and Am Israel. The ten words are almost like the uh, marriage document, the ketubah, as I mentioned in the previous um, section of this commentary portion. The covenant code, or the book of the covenant, in Exodus 24, uh, verse 7, immediately follows the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. In fact, that's where we were talking about how the Moses and the elders went up and saw the God of Israel. And in 24-7 it reads, quote, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud so that the people could hear and they responded, quote, Everything that Adonai has spoken we will do and obey. Quote. What is the book of the covenant? The Sefer Berit in Hebrew. Well, the book of the covenant is... Um, uh, it generally deals with the criminal and the civil laws. It's it's what I c- called the um, law earlier, as as in relationship to the um, the ten words themselves. So the covenant code of say Exodus twenty one twenty three deals with these civil matters, um, and consequently the literary form of the code takes a familiar legal structure, and it is there that I want to comment a bit about. Uh, It's the do's and don'ts that we read about, and we oftentimes misunderstand what exactly the Torah is trying to convey to the community. Why the strict do's and don'ts? Well, let's talk about that. There are two forms in the legal code, right? There's casuistic and apodictic. The um, casuistic form is found in the first section of the covenant code in Exodus 21.1 through chapter 22.17. That's where we have um, the casuistic form, and I'll explain it in a moment, I just want to get the terms out there front. Um, the uh, the, apodictic, the apodictic form is found in the second section, which is chapter 20 through 2, verses 18 through 23. Now, the, um, let's define the terms. The casuistic form first states a condition. Uh, the technical term for this is prothesis, all right? Casuistic is just prothesis. And it normally begins with words like if or when. You know, it's like um, situational. That's why we call it case law. Um, the protesis describes the circumstances or the conditions that prompt the consequential injunctions. The second part, that is the injunction, is called the apotheosis. So we, so casuistic and apodictic is just another fancy way of saying protesis-apotheosis. It contains a statement of legal consequences uh, that go with the circumstances that may or may not begin with the word then. So we got if, then. Now let me just give you two examples, because some of you I know are, are getting confused. Quote, When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. End quote. Now that example is taken right out of Exodus twenty-one seven. And then let me give you one more out of Exodus 21.35, a few verses down. Quote, if someone's ox hurts the ox of another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the price of it. Okay, let's break it down. The apodictic form usually found in the second part of the covenant code states the commands in the second person you. Um, actually, I'm sorry, before I go on, let me break down those two, two verses. Um, in the case where it talked about the ox, notice how it starts with the if, and then it concludes with the then. All right? That's how we know that it is the, um, the casuistic form, or the protasis. The apodictic form, the, um, uh, the apodosis, the, is uh, usually found in the second part of the covenant code. And it states commands in the second person, you. It gives commandments or prohibitions in direct forms without any description about the circumstances. Okay? That's how it differs from the, um, the casuistic form. For example, we read in Exodus 22, quote, You shall not permit a female sorcerer to live. Notice how it doesn't say, If a sorcerer is found among you, then you shall not permit her to live. It just simply comes out and says, quote, You shall not. And the you, of course, is second person singular. Um, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death, in quote. That's verses 18 and 19 of chapter 22. Let's pull out another one, the uh, same chapter, verse 28. Quote, you shall not revile God or curse a leader of your people. Notice there's no if clause. It simply starts out with the injunction. The apodictic form is most common in other legal codes uh, like the Priestly and the Holiness Codes that we're going to read about in Leviticus chapters 11 through ch- through chapters uh, 18. The Priestly Code is another legal document found in other parts of Exodus, Numbers, and specifically Leviticus. And it really specifically deals with matters related to religious concerns and ritual procedures. That's why we call it the Priestly Code. Perhaps the oldest and most distinct section of this code is, as I mentioned, the Holiness Code, um, identified by biblical scholars as chapters seventeen through twenty six of Leviticus, which I might also add is the heart of the Torah if you were to take the five books of Moshe and to split it kind of right down the middle the heart of the of the um, pages or the book would be the Leviticus code here that i 'm mentioning uh, The basic theological thrust of this code is stated in the following passage quote "You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. End quote. And of course that's lifted out of Leviticus 19.2. That is both the heart and thrust of the the Priestly Code, the Leviticus Code, and it is the heart of God's intent of bringing the passages to our knowledge. The book of Deuteronomy, as the name indicates, it means the second law, Deuteronomos, Namas. Deutero, second, namas, law. Um, The book of Deuteronomy contains legal codes pertaining to kingship, human relations, family life, and civil and cultic matters. It is a comprehensive guide to every aspect of community life. Um, Perhaps this is why Yeshua quoted from the book of Deuteronomy more than any other book. Even though it constantly reminds the readers about the history of Hashem's dealings with Israel. Um, It speaks to everybody. Um, The core of this book became the source of King Josiah's reform, in 621 BCE, um, if you recall, the, um, the Torah had been of sorts lost, and King Josiah dis- rediscovered the Torah among the ruins. Um, and as such, he became intently interested in reforming his community, as a righteous king should, and he intently studied the book of Deuteronomy. The written Torah reflects not only the nomadic life before the settlement in the Promised Land, as, of course, we know that Deuteronomy ends before they reach the Promised Land. But um, the written Torah also presupposes the social milieu of Israel during the times of the kingdom. Isn't it interesting to observe in my um, closing of this particular section that the Torah presupposes that the people will make it to the land, and as such it instructs them as to how to establish um, a community once they settle in the land. Therefore, in, 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 in that sense alone, the Torah is prophetic in, in letting the people know that they are going to reach the goal. Okay? Continuing on with our discussion about the Torah, let's uh, move now into, uh, from the uh, written Torah, the Torah Shibiktav, into the oral tradition. Now we're going to talk about the oral Torah, or this next section is entitled Torah Shiba'al Pei, which the phrase Torah Shiba'al Pei means Torah from the mouth. Although the written Torah, as we read the Bible, seems to be precise in its description of legal codes and commandments, quite pragmatically, we would have to agree that it would be impossible to write down every conceivable human behavior and ascertain whether or not the Torah allowed each one of those behaviors. You would have to agree, right? Well, the sages being, aw- being made aware of this, um, how shall I say, weakness of the Torah, um, needed to necessarily allow for God to speak to every human experience, yet at the same time, they need to understand how is it that we can do God's will if God doesn't give us every single um, uh, possibility, uh, possible situation that we might find ourselves in. So, for instance, let me give you a very, very pertinent example within Jewish communities concerning the prohibition of work on the Sabbath. All right? Uh, the Torah repeatedly tells us that no work is to be done on the Sabbath. Uh, lighting a fire is prohibited on the Sabbath. Um, but then it just talks about in other places. For instance, let me just turn in my Torah now. This time I want to pull out the Hebrew, because there's a there's a Hebrew word that wants, that I want to uh, emphasize. I'm going to jump through a few different passages. Um, uh, let's see. Which one do I want to pull out for? Exodus 31 is a good place to start. Chapter 31, not thirty verse one in Exodus chapter thirty one, starting in verse twelve, we read in the English uh, Hashem said to Moses, saying Now now you speak to the children of Israel. This time by the way I'm reading out of the stone edition Tanakh. Now you speak to the children of Israel, saying, However, you must observe my Sabbaths, for it is a sign between me and you and for your generations to know that I am Hashem, who makes you holy. You shall observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Its desecrators shall be put to death. For whoever does work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, and the seventh day is a day of complete rest. It is sacred to Hashem. Whoever does work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Notice it mentions... Work, which is the Hebrew word malacha, and it mentions the death penalty. Let me mention uh, with that. Let me put my thumb over there. If you want to follow along with me over to Exodus chapter, you know what? I don't want to go to Exodus. Uh, go to go back in Exodus. I want to go forward in Leviticus real quick. Let's look at Leviticus 23. Here's a here's a list in Leviticus that talks about um, uh, the festivals. But it starts by mentioning, in the first three pasukim. it starts by mentioning the Sabbath. Hashem spoke to Moses, I'm in Leviticus 23, verse 1 through 3. Hashem spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, Hashem's appointed festivals that you are desi- that you are to designate as holy convocations. These are my appointed festivals. And then look at verse 3, uh, which, you know, being couched within the context of a festival, um, or the, the festivals, the appointed times, uh, the Sabbath gets mentioned. Uh, for six days labor may be done, and the seventh day is a complete is a day of complete rest. It is a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath of Hashem in all your dwelling places. I pulled this passage out for a few reasons. Uh, it doesn't mention the uh, death penalty, but it does mention that it's a day of complete rest um, versus in Exodus. Uh, let's see, did it say complete rest there? who observes the Sabbath, whoever does work. It doesn't say complete rest there. Um, it does talk about in the Leviticus passage that six days labor may be done. All right? Six days you can work and the seventh day is a, a day of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. Again, uh, this this Hebrew word work, malachah, what is it? What is God referring to when he says don't do any work? Um, let me... Just to make sure let's look at verse three in the Hebrew. Uh for six days labor may be done and the seventh day Sheshet Yamim Ta Se Malcha Uvyom, Hashvi Shavat Shabaton Mikra Kodesh Kol Malcha Lo Taasu Shabat Hualadonai Bohom Mishfotechum. Um six days labor may be done. And the seventh day is a day of complete rest, a Shabbat, Shabbaton, a day of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. Um, uh, I'm sorry, here we are. Uh, Work you shall not do. What is work? What is malacha? What is God referring to? We don't know. I mean, is it lighting fires? Is it shopping? Is it going to the mall? Is it is it browsing the internet? You know, is it using your computer? Is it listening to secular music? Is it going to uh, you know going to the theme park? Is it going to uh, the baseball game? What is Malacha? And that's where the ancients. Uh, had problems, they had questions, you know. God, if you're going to assign the death penalty, I go back now to Exodus thirty one, Moshe God spoke to Moses saying, Ach et Now you speak to of Israel saying, However you must observe my Sabbaths. Et because these are a sign between me and for your generations. And then, um, you know, God, God is is serious about this. Look at passage fourteen: For you shall observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Um, it, it it and its desecrator shall be put to death. Wow, put to death. So we've got this death penalty that wasn't that wasn't mentioned in Leviticus, that is definitely mentioned in Exodus. And the and the sages have to ask themselves: You know, if God's assigning the death penalty to this particular mitzvah or the prohibition or the uh, the um, breaking of it. We, the violation of it. We better know what we're doing. We better know what Malacha is. And, to be sure, you get down to Pasach 16 and 17, and God says that this is an eternal covenant for all their generations. Between God and the children of Israel. It's a sign. And uh, it's a sign forever that in the six-day period, God made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested, and he was refreshed. So we've got these 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 important um uh distinctions that are assigned to the sabbath uh no work uh it's a death penalty if you violate it um it's a sign between me and the children of Israel uh it's eternal for for me between me and their generations between and uh, throughout their generations between me and, and and them god says um and it's a sign that in a 6 day period i made heaven and earth and on the 7th day i rested and was refreshed what are we to make of all of this information well Again, concerning the prohibition of work on the Sabbath, we notice that nowhere in the Torah is there a definition of what constitutes malachah. What is work? You know, at least the, from the Torah perspective. If we turn to Amos chapter 8, verse 5, and Jeremiah 17, verse 21 through 24, then we see in these passages that they mention keeping the Sabbath in concrete terms. That is to say, by the times of the prophets at least the two passages I just mentioned. We had forbidding of trading and bearing a burden. We had some details that were given to the Shabbat. But um, overall, it's impossible to enumerate all the probable behaviors and circumstances and to adequately give judgment as to whether or not they violate the Sabbath. You've got to agree that when God says um, in Exodus chapter, in fact, let me just turn to it real quick. Exodus chapter... Again, we're still on the Sabbath principle. Exodus chapter 20. Here we have the giving of the ten words, the Devarim, the Asrat HaDvarim, or the Ten Commandments, as it is known in uh, Christian circles. And in Exodus 20, starting in Pasuk 8, we read Zahor, Et yom haShabbat l'Kadcho. Remember the Sabbath day to sanctify it. Here we have, again, six days you shall work and accomplish all your work. Va'asit kol malach Shabbat Shabbat Elohecha lo But the seventh day is the day of Sabbath. Hashem, your God shall not do any work. Six days you shall work and accomplish all your work. God tells us there to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What exactly does it mean to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy? So we've got some some questions now. Again, if I just ask this question, what does it mean to, to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? And if I were to ask a hundred people, you know what? I'm going to get a hundred different answers, even from people of the same community. Everybody's kind of got their own concept of what remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy might look like. So this became more of a problem, this, these, these uh, uh, details I'm bringing up. This became more of a problem as time went on, and the historical and cultural circumstances changed in later periods. You know, like I mentioned, let's just say in our own community we decided to say that Sabbath violation involved turning on the radio on the Sabbath day. Well, obviously, say 500 years ago, that wouldn't have been a problem. There were no radios. So that's what I mean by it became more of a problem as time went on. Now, the violation of Sabbath is a very serious offense for Jewish people everywhere. We just read that it's a capital offense in ancient times. But the absence of a precise definition of working on the Sabbath, Malcha work in the Pentateuch has been a persistent problem, especially for the sages. Now again, unless people have a clear definition of what constitutes labor on the Sabbath, we have to agree that they cannot objectively observe it, and they can't collectively agree if we don't know what constitutes labor. Now again, even for contemporary pious Christians, this poses a serious problem, right? Like Amos and Jeremiah, the believing community surely had their own understanding about the Sabbath, and for them, they had something that became the tradition of the community. We might notice that since the time of Ezra in the post-exilic period, you know, the people had already come out of exile, out of Babylon and out of Assyria, and during that time period, many experts on the law, the scribes, the sofrim, um, the beginning of the of of the uh, uh, of the sages who who were, were, were set up into an authoritative position, um, many things began to happen. But we still had to ask ourselves, uh, who has the right to say what is work and what is not? And, for that matter, who has the right to enforce the laws once we establish what is work and what is a violation of work? So, in this time period, at least from the times of Ezra, um, interpreting the Torah in and for the covenant community um, was was something that was, was, was taken very, very seriously. And so many experts on the law uh, were around during that time. They were interpreting the laws. They were, they were adding um, uh, boundaries to the commandments. And this is not necessarily a bad thing because um, the community looked to their leaders and they regarded their words as having what? Binding authority. Now in some cases... The community invested binding authority on par with the Torah as the written Torah. That's where perhaps maybe eyebrows are raised, at least within Christian circles, because we're not used to that. Maybe we, maybe within Catholic circles we might have it, but um, standard Protestant circles don't seem to... Um, Welcome that particular uh, feature of community leadership to be able to have a word that is on par with the written word of God. You know, thus saith thus saith Ariel, and uh, the people are expected to step into thus saith Ariel equally as much as they would say, step into thus saith the Lord. That's what we begin to see during this post-exilic period. So, um, don't think it necessarily a bad thing. There, there, there was what I'm trying to say is there was a necessary. Um, uh, hole in the community for leaders to step in and, and begin to put boundaries on some of these commandments that seem to be left open-ended. That's to be expected. Now, the traditional interpretations of the Torah by the experts on the Torah, as well as those of the rabbis of blessed memory, the Chazal, uh, particularly after the destruction of 70 AD, if we can kind of fast-forward our clock for a bit, uh, fast-forward our time frame. Um, these These interpretations... As they became um, more and more um, precise and detailed and clarified and authoritative, I should say, within the community, um, the the oral tradition carried be, began to carry more and more weight within the community. This became the Torah Shabbat Alpeh, or the Torah from the mouth, and uh, it was also known as the unwritten or the oral Torah. So this is. The Oral Torah. This is the tradition, the oral tradition. Now, according to um, according to the uh, uh, to Peter Keavot, uh one of the tractates in the Mishnah, um, the the oral tradition was actually handed down um, from Moses, uh, f- uh, you know, from Sinai, transmitted to Joshua, to the elders, to the assembly. Uh, to the prophets, and then it was transmitted to the uh, the men of the um, of the Knesset or the Great Assembly. That's according to the Peter or I'm going to quote that a little later on in my commentary. But I brought it up to, at this early point because um, we need to understand where did the Orator come from, and where did the uh, 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 the sages seem to derive their authority to make the decisions that they were making? Now, I already mentioned that it's just a necessary, and and, and I should say. It's a practical function of any community to develop uh, unwritten laws in addition to the written ones. So, in the in, the, in the, for instance, let's go back to the uh, um, the the uh, example of the Sabbath that I was mentioning early earlier, right? Judaism never really had a problem with the written Torah, but what they realized was that in order for their uh, members to be able to walk into the written Torah, they had to also Respect the rulings and the decisions and the opinions of the judges and the rulers that they had set into place. Remember the pasuk, the opening pasuk of our current Torah portion. What did God say? Appoint judges and officers for all your gates. And then later on, down in in uh, chapter 17, um, in verse 11, it says, "In accordance with the Torah, they teach, speaking of the leaders of the community. In accordance with the Torah or the law." They teach you you are to carry out the judgments they render, not turning aside to the right or to the left from the verdict they declare to you. So we seem to have this um, commandment in the mitzvah right here in the poor portion uh, telling the people to listen to what their leaders are saying. And, and and in principle, that's right. We really should understand that the leaders that have been appointed are there by, by by heavenly authority, and we are to listen to what they say. So, consequently, Judaism has this notion that they've been able to keep the written Torah merely by observing the oral Torah. That is to say, by obeying the tradition in concrete terms, you know, the... Uh, the, uh, the, the the example a uh, given for Sabbath no business on the Sabbath for example let's close our shops and let's let's build a fence around the Torah let's make sure that there are things that we will not do to violate the Sabbath the tab- Sabbath says don't carry your bur- your burden don't carry your pack or I'm sorry the um the commandment says don't light a fire let's let's use example because that's fairly concrete that's uh that's right out of the Torah that's in what is that in Exodus chapter thirty four I believe let me just turn to it real quick. Uh, it is in chapter 35. I was very close. Exodus 35. uh, Moshe assembled the whole community of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things which Adonai has ordered you to do. Pasuk 2 says, On six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is to be a holy day for you, a Shabbat of complete rest in honor of Adonai. Whoever does any work on it is to be put to death. Pasuk 3 reads, You are not to kindle a fire in any of your homes on Shabbat. The Hebrew word... um, Beirah uh, uh, means to burn or to ignite or to consume or to kindle. Comes from the root word baar. Uh, don't kindle a fire. So let's start there. The Torah says, "Don't kindle a fire." So what we would you do in Judaism? We would build a fence around that mitzvah. So we're not even going to look at fire. We're not gonna even going to. We're not even going to go near our stoves. You know, we're not even going to turn on our stoves. We're not going to drive our cars. We're not going to turn on the lights. We're going to build fires or uh, fires. We're going to build uh, fences around this mitzvah so that we make sure we don't violate it. Unnecessarily, and on the on the conceptual level, that's the right thing to do. That as that's, that's really a proper attitude. I'm not knocking that. Don't get me wrong. I think it's the proper attitude to have as we as we look at God's commandments and say, "God, your words are so precious to us. We don't want to violate them, and we may not fully understand them, but we'll do what we can to safeguard them, because there is a commandment to safeguard. Uh, the Hebrew word, um, um. I'm drawing a blank now. What is the Hebrew word? Oh, shamar. To safeguard the commandments. So we are to internalize this commandment first and safeguard it. And So I think it's got the right uh, um, attitude at heart to uh, to, th- to think of this. So Jewish people, again, by obe- by obeying the tradition in concrete terms for, for the Sabbath example, no business on the Sabbath, then they felt that they could observe the commandment about the Sabbath just by making sure that the oral tradition was maintained. Now, um... The time period during the Tanaim, um, this is the time period when the the, uh, Talmud, or the oral tradition, started to gain a lot of uh, shape. And so it was during the highlight of this period, of Rabbinic Judaism, um, that the teachers heavily taught their students as well as the people, that God revealed his will, not only through the written Torah, but also through the unwritten traditions as well. The rabbis, that's when they were actually called rabbis. Prior to that, they were really probably known as proto-rabbis. Anyway, the rabbis claimed that the oral Torah, which was transmitted by word of mouth, that's why it's called oral Torah, was also given to Moshe at Mount Sinai, teaching that it had in fact existed side by side along with the Written Torah ever since. I want to pull a quote from um, the tra- a tractate out of the Talmud known as uh, uh, Pirkei Avot, uh, Sayings of the Fathers, or Tractate Avot, uh, in verse one one or chapter one, verse one of this of this tractate. We read this statement: quote, Moshe received the law from Sinai and transmitted it to Joshua, and Joshua to the elders, and the elders to the prophets. The prophets transmitted it to the men of the great assembly. End quote. That's Avot 1-1. That same tractate goes on to talk about how that they are supposed to establish courts of justice and and um, and to uh, you know gather uh, students to yourself and to make a fence around Torah. We're not going to go there for the moment, j- just yet. I just want to focus on the part that you um, uh, uh, you need to understand that according to the oral tradition, God gave it to Moses. Moses received the law. And when it says the law, they believe it was both written and unwritten. Written law and unwritten. Both coming from Moshe. And then being passed down unbroken, as it were, to Joshua, and then to the men of the Sanhedrin—that's the 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 elders. I'm sorry, the the elders, and then the uh, to the prophets, and then to the men of the great assembly, the Sanhedrin. We do recognize, from the Torah point of view, that Moshe does pass the law to Joshua, and Joshua does give it to the elders, and then the elders give it to the prophets, and the prophets do, as it were, give it to the men of the great assembly. As far as the written Torah is concerned, we have no problem with that. I say we, speaking for both Christians and many Messianic Jews. But many people do not follow that uh, tradition, the one that I just stated there, out of a vote. This unwritten Torah, this oral Torah, was it really divine? Was it really from God? That's where the question arises. According to tradition, again, this unwritten Torah was eventually written down and collected in the voluminous book referred to as the Talmud. The Talmud is... Um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a work... <laughs> It was destined to be a work that would never really be uh, uh, finished because of all the the, the addendums that, that became added to it, all of the uh, the additions, I should say. The, the, uh, the Talmud started out as the oral collections brought together. It's about, oh, I'd say 80% halakha and 20% agadic uh, halakha, being, of course, the um, the rulings that have been passed down from the judges And those um, leaders in the community, uh, those who are appointed over the people, remember our Torah portion starts off in Shoftim uh, Shoftim, with God commanding Moshe to have the people elect leaders and judges among them. Chapter 17 of Deuteronomy says just that, that you are to appoint leaders in your community and that for whatever ruling that they give to you, you are not to turn to the right or to the left. There is a precedent in the Torah, in the written Torah, for establishing leadership in a community and that we, the followers, are supposed to listen to what they say. I'm not disputing that. The um, halakha, however, can be applied to a community as long as they give that leader the uh, authority to um, to govern them. And so the halakha gains its weight from the both the leadership and the community following that leadership. Uh, let's break down the Talmud for a split second. Uh, Talmud is really kind of like a Bible if you think about it in this crude way. Composed of two parts. We have the first part known as the Mishnah, which is a word which refers to repetition, Mishnah, uh, to repeat or to go over and over again. Uh, This would refer to most of the oral tradition. Um, Halakha, of course, is going to be captured within the Mishnah. And then there was a a section that was uh, added to the Mishnah to Really, come along and explain, or comment, or 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 uh, ex- extend the Mishnah, as it were. And this second section was known as the Gemara, um, you know, that which completes the Mishnah. The word Gemara suggests completion. The Mishnah was compiled by Rabbi Judah the Prince, who was born in 135 after the destruction of the Temple. And uh, the Mishnah itself is the most important tradition in the Talmud. And with that, let's call this part B. It's about 40 minutes or so into the commentary, and um, we've we've reached a place where we can kind of make a break. We're near the top of page 7, and we're poised to um, bring in a significant quote from Jacob Neusner's CD-ROM edition of the Talmud. Um, so that we can, um, again, get it, gain a, an appreciation of the oral tradition and how it bears some relevance to the Christian church today. So stay with us for Part C to uh, my commentary to Shmini Atzeret.